Welcome everyone to the Ask an Operator podcast, where we have conversations with some of the brightest business minds to understand the strategies and tactics that they use to build their businesses. And here on the podcast, we are heavy on value and light on fluff. So without further ado, let's get right into this episode. Today, we've got an incredible guest, Mr. Aaron Parkinson, who's the CEO of Seven Mile Media and a digital marketing pioneer. He's been in the industry for over 20 years has exited three different companies and has generated over a billion dollars in online sales. In addition to that, he sits on the Traffic and Conversions Agency Advisor Committee, is a faculty member of Digital Marketer and hosts his very own podcast called Sales Velocity. And he currently lives in the Cayman Islands with his wife and three children. So without further ado, Aaron, welcome to the Ask an Operator podcast. How are you today? I'm doing so good. Yeah, I feel like we uh, we were talking and jamming before this, and we were going off on some crazy different rabbit holes. Maybe they'll come back up in this show today. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's almost the things that you talk about beforehand that, should, that we should have just recorded from the first minute. Always, right? always. <laughs> so I got to ask, with 20 years in the digital marketing realm, I mean, that's about as long as the practice has been around in, in general. What did that look like 20 years ago? Right. Yeah. Like I remember early Facebook ads and like what the UI looked like, but walk me all the way back to what, what chaos. you were experiencing. Absolute wild west chaos is what it was. And my kids always laugh because I, I say to, to them, I've been doing digital marketing longer than Google. And they're, <laughs> and they're like, how's that possible? How old are you? You know, and it's just the, it's just a fact, you know, and and 20 years ago when I got started, it was so different than it is today. It, it was there was no courses, there was no communities, there was no, you know, masterminds, it was figure it out on your own, you know, and it was guys like me and Frank Kern and eventually Ryan Dice and, you know, we were all just you know, trying to catch lightning in a bottle and the, the downside was you just wasted so much money because there was no proof of concept on anything. But the upside was when you figured it out, you made so much money because it was so cheap. There was no competition in the space right. yet. But when I look back at like the first stuff we were doing, there was like Overture, which was like the, the first like search engine. And then, you know, when Google came along, it was like, holy crap, like this is the easiest most amazing thing ever. People search for what they want and I just put an ad in front of them and they buy my stuff. Like it's amazing, you know? And, and then Google went through a thing they called the Google slap. I don't know if you want to talk about this on the show because maybe people find it interesting or not. I don't know. So you can just stop me in my tracks. But the business that I had in the mid 2000s, we were the first online marketing education platform at scale. So we had 80,000 students in 100 countries paying $150 a month subscription and we were teaching them how to build funnels, how to buy media, how to create offers, how to do follow-ups. You know, we partnered with guys like Simon Sinek and David Bach and John Maxwell for thought leaders. And like it was, it was pretty wild. But the the reality is, is that that we were spending about a hundred thousand dollars a month on Google, maybe two hundred thousand a month on Google. We were doing like a million five a month in revenue. And then one day we just showed up and it was all gone. Wow. Like literally that next day, we all our ads were gone and a thing happened called the Google slap. And basically what happened is there was a company that had a product. It was called something like Google Money Machine or something like that. And they advertised it on Google and it was the spammiest thing you'd ever seen. It was like buy it for $2.99 and literally in the fine print, like you couldn't read the fine print. It said in two weeks, you'll be charged $500. Like it wasn't on a checkout page with a, a button or like it was literally unreadable in the fine print. Wow. And there was nobody policing anything at that point, which is why it was the Wild West. Mm -hmm. And they made so much money and had so many consumer complaints that eventually the FTC grabbed them. And then they went to Google and they said to Google, number one, you didn't police this. Number two, your name is in their name. So you didn't protect your own trademark. So they thought it was potentially you know, you as part of the company. Mm -hmm. And number three, you made a dump truck load of money, letting them buy ads on your platform. So you are complicit. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to bend over 
and change this entire platform to whatever we want it to be, or we're taking the whole thing down right now. Wow. And Google went, white flag, <laughs> we'll do whatever you want. And the next day, anybody that was selling anything education-based was wiped off the system. Wow. So we went from a million five a month to like $150,000 a month in that fast. Wow. And that was when we all went, okay, where does this go now? You know, like it's email, it's, it's playing shell games with your media buying, trying to set up different accounts and do this and do that and blah, 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 blah. And then Facebook showed up on the scenes and we were like, oh, thank God there's another solid alternative. Cause all the other alternatives were crap. Right. And Facebook just beat the brakes off of Google with regards to their targeting, being in front of people all the time, not just intent-based, but disruption-based. Customer service was amazing, which is shocking because Facebook has the worst customer service on earth right now. <laughs> True. You know, and, and, and at the time, Google had the worst customer service on earth because they were like, we don't need to have customer service. We're the 10,000-pound we're the, we're the gorilla. Right, right. And then Facebook came in with a, a better product at the time and great customer service, and now it's flip-flop. Yes. Facebook has the worst customer service. Google is amazing customer service. TikTok, we have a rep in our Slack channel that that talks to us and tells us, you know, what we need to do. It's it's funny how the market just switches all over the place. But the short answer to your question is, it was chaos. It was cheap. It was unregulated. It was madness. If you figured it out, you made dump truck loads of money. And now it's much more competitive, much more fundamental based you know, much more regulated, completely different world. Yeah. Yeah, ab absolutely. That's a, that's a crazy story. I never knew that that was uh, kind of like the, the digital marketing D day there for, mm -hmm. for, for a moment. <laughs> yep. And now they still have like updates in the, in the Google algorithm. You know, I think one, one of them was penguin and this and that and whatever it more impacts the SEO side. Mm -hmm. So all the people trying to rank, organically or rank Google maps or whatever like that. People spend so much time and money building that. And then this one algorithm change happens and they're just, their business is wiped out. It's, it's pretty gnarly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that uh, brings up a good point. What are some of the things, you know, these platforms change all the time mm -hmm. weekly, right? And what are some of the foundational elements that business owners need to get right? So despite whatever algorithm change platform changes occurring, their business remains solid. Do you have some principles that you kind of live by? Yeah. I mean, we share these with a lot of our clients. Like rule number one is the most dangerous number in business is one. So the example I'll give you is we have a client right now that's generating about 700,000 a month in revenue, good company, good product. And they're on one channel and they came on as a client two months ago and we said, we really need to get you diversified into other channels just, you know, for safety's sake. They didn't listen. One of their employees did something stupid and clicked on something they shouldn't. And they were the admin on the account. It got hacked. It, the business is dead. Mm. It's at a standstill right now. They've got a huge staff, sales team, customer service, everything, enough people to fund a $700,000 a month business. Mm. And right now they have zero traffic. It's going to take forever, if at all, to get that account back because Facebook is horrifically slow in that regards. And if they want to just spin up another one, which a lot of people think, I'll just spin up another one. You know Facebook well. Mm -hmm. Now you got a $50 a day ad budget cap for at least six weeks. These guys were spending $200,000 a month. Like, how are they going to recover from that? And so rule number one is don't have all your eggs in one basket. Number two it's put the processes in place to maximize your LTV outside of those traffic channels and LTV lifetime value for those people who don't know. So are you living in their system, for example, where your sole campaign is all Facebook Messenger and if it goes away, you don't have a customer list anymore? That's a terrible idea. Are you building your email list? Are you building your you know, phone SMS contact list? Are you building, are you pulling people out of those ecosystems into your own ecosystems so that if things, something does go sideways, you, you can, you can draw revenue from those places while you figure things out, or are you solely reliant 
on, on what they give you today. It's like Amazon businesses. This is why I never went down the Amazon road. I got so many friends in Amazon killing it. And I got so many friends who were killing it. And then the next day the algorithm changed and they have nothing. They're mm -hmm. dead because they yeah. don't control anything, you know? Right. So it, it's, I just hate that. I hate that all eggs in one basket mentality. It, it just bites people all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Controlling your own, your own destiny in terms of distribution and, and absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. That's a, that's a great point. Anything else on that side, on the timeless aspect that, that you kind of recommend to business? I think that, I think a big one is that, that number one, I'm going to say cybersecurity is the single biggest issue we have right now. We had this conversation with my team this mm -hmm. week. We've lost $40,000 in monthly revenue in the last seven days wow. because clients got hacked. Wow. And we know it's a problem, but we didn't, we didn't make a big enough emphasis in it, in our onboarding. We just sort of glazed over it and said, here's the things you should do. Here's the, we literally have a giant warning sign with a 10 minute video now showing need to know because I'm tired of losing clients because clients are clicking on stupid things, right? So if you're in any of these channels, you have to realize that the cybersecurity attacks are amping up so fast right now and they're so sophisticated by email, by messenger, by notification, by commenting on your post, by phone call even, mm -hmm. that I can look at my phone right now. I bet you, Nicholas, I'm, this, I'm gambling right now because I could look like an idiot. I bet you I can pull up my notifications right now where I have my clients on here and find one spam attack on them in the first 10 seconds of scrolling through my phone. Let's see, if I'm, see if I can actually put my money where my mouth is. Let's see it. All right. Might take longer than 10 seconds. Hold on. I'm going to find one. Right. Here you go. Right here. Boom. How long did that take me? Uh, about seven, eight seconds. <laughs> okay. Do you see? I don't know if you can, if my camera will grab. Okay. Do you see right there? It says account help SP 101 sent you a message warning. Dear blah, 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 blah. You, yep. if I click on that right now, it's going to try and get my information and get into my account yep. and hack it and get me blocked out and spend $20,000 on my credit card. Five. That took me seven seconds. That's Wild. the level of attacks that are happening on cybersecurity right now. So it's a big, big, big issue. Um, I would say probably the second one is... Crew, if you're enjoying this episode of the Ask an Operator podcast, it would mean the world to me if you left us a quick rating and a review. It really helps us reach more people and get valuable insight into more people's hands. So thanks a million. Let's get back to the Mid show. 2000, read the compliance of these things, like around in any of these channels on their compliance. And they might, you might get away with doing dumb things for a while because you see people, you know, running dumb things all the time. And you think, how did they get through? They're on borrowed time. And when they get shut down, it's really difficult to have a stable business using those channels moving forward, you got to do a lot of really weird gray hat stuff yeah. to keep going. So, you know, make sure your cyber's tight, make sure you've read through the compliance, make sure you're following the rules, make sure you're diversified and make sure you've got elements in your control where you're increasing your lifetime value, you know, through email or through email or through SMS or through live events or through whatever, Zoom, whatever you want to do, but don't, don't give away all of your contact information to somebody else and, and not have control over that. Yeah. Yeah. And I can, I can attest to that as well. Even, even our clients, you know, on the agency side, getting their business managers hacked, getting all of their clients accounts shut down. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, on their clients cards and the impact on churn that that has for, for them. And to your point, yeah, I could definitely attest that it is ramping up and it sounds like everyone's kind of on the same page there. Those Facebook support messages look really convincing if you're not careful. That's the least convincing one I've seen. It just was the first one that was in my feed. Like the one this morning said like Facebook's support, like, oh, and then okay. it had like their logo and stuff. And it's just, I'm just, they're, they're nonstop. Wild. You will never be asked to click anything outside of your business manager. Don't click anything. Just ignore it. Love it. Yeah. I feel like this is a, this is a topic that not a lot of people put a lot of attention on until it happens to them. Uh, right. so yeah, definitely having things locked in beforehand, big, big key. One of the things that, 
you tweeted in back a few years ago was that math is the basis of marketing and don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. Can you tell me a little <laughs> bit more about what you meant by that? Uh, yeah, for sure. The, the reality is we can track everything now. And the unfortunate thing about most humans is they've got a, a pre-built in bias around creativity what they like, what they don't like, what they like to read, what they don't like, the shows they like, the shows they don't like, whatever. And so they constantly feel this need to give input into things without any scientific basis. And our job is to create models in marketing and projections and hit those models because if you're making money, you can grow. If you're not making money, you can't grow. If your campaign is making money, it works. If it's not making money, it doesn't work. If a test we set up works, we're going to know from the math. It doesn't really matter what we think, what you think, what the client thinks. The math is all that matters. And, and it's and you have to take your ego out of the equation because there's so many people that just feel like, like their opinion matters. Your opinion doesn't matter at all. And, and we have to have conversations with clients all the time. We had had one with them today where they said, well, we want to do this this way. And they did it for the last three weeks. And they said, we really like this. So your conversion rate's 2%. It was 9% before. No, you're not allowed to do it that way anymore. It's stupid. I refuse to allow you. You are mm -hmm. wrong, right? It, the math is right and you are wrong. Mm -hmm. So follow the math. And if you mm -hmm. take your emotion and your ego out of the equation, you'll win. I don't have any ego. I let the test determine whether or not it's a winner. Right. Right. Yeah. We can have all the hypotheses we want. The market, the market will do the talking, right? Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's shift a little bit to, to client management then. You know, we, we have a lot of agencies that are going to be listening to this. On the client management side, how do you approach those more difficult conversations where you're saying, hey, respectfully, uh, your opinion doesn't matter here, and this is what we need uh, to make our decisions off of. How do you conduct those conversations uh, with your clients? I think it starts back in the beginning at the positioning from the very get-go. So, you know, I asked, my, I asked my team the other day, I said, do you think our clients are slightly afraid of me? Not really afraid, just slightly afraid. And they said, yeah, we do. I said, do you think that's a bad thing? And they said, we don't know. I said, it's a great thing. And I'll tell you why. Because clients are coming to you looking for leadership. Andy Andrews has one of my favorite quotes ever. I don't know if you know Andy Andrews, the author. He said, people are so starving for leadership, you could light yourself on fire and walk down the road and people would follow you just to watch you burn. And when people come to us, they're coming to you because they don't know the answers. They don't know what to do next. They're confused, they're overwhelmed, they're overworked, they're understaffed, and they're looking for the alpha female, the alpha male, whatever you are running your agency, to understand their problem and create the plan and say, we're going this way. But because they're the business owner, they're used to everybody saying, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, putting them on a pedestal and their egos are overinflated. So they can't really help themselves, but try to tell you what you should do because they're the boss. They're used to that role. It's not their fault. Mm -hmm. When the reality is what they want though, is for you to tell them to shut up, explain to them why they're wrong, explain why you're going to, what you're going to do is right. And then go off in that direction. They, they're, they're dying, starving for that leadership. And when you do it and you explain to them why you're doing it, they go, oh, thank God. I don't know about you, Nick. How many people have said to you, you know, I hired this agency and I just had to let them go because I felt like I was the only one bringing ideas to the table. I felt like I was the one going, shouldn't we do this? Shouldn't we do that? I was the one saying like, what are the numbers on this? Well, well let's have a look. The moment that you start letting the client drive the bus, you are screwed. Oh, yeah, absolutely screwed. Even if they tell you and beg you, I want to drive the bus. No, you will not. You will do things my way or you will leave. Yeah. And that can blow up in your face sometimes with big egos. But I'd rather somebody quit today than let them take the reins, screw everything up. And three months later, say it was your fault because they're not going to remember that I said we shouldn't do that. 
I don't think that's a good idea. We should go this way. No, no, there's no personal ownership in that situation. Wow. They're going to blame me. They're going to quit. They're going to take zero responsibility. I might as well kick them out in the beginning and save my reputation. Totally agree. Yeah, you're like you said, you're going to get get blamed anyway for it. So stand um, your ground. Exactly. And yeah, I tell and them that. I literally say to them, I, what, exactly what I just said to you, I say to them. I say, this is what's going to happen. And I'm not having it. Yeah. It's and not that, take, that takes a lot of confidence to do so. And when you're confident in your positioning and the result you can provide, you can they deliver that. Yeah, you can deliver that, that message. And they love it. Yeah, I love that. Incredible points uh, on that side. Anything else that you feel goes into a successful client relationship apart from the positioning, you know, being in the seat of authority, direction, anything else that, that you like to... Planning, to planning and transparency, for sure. Uh, one of the, the, the tenants inside of our organization is if the client has to ask what's next, we failed. Hmm. So we are very proactive in laying out what the plan is going to be, timelines, goals, projections, challenges we're facing, maybe why we're facing them, hypotheses, testing. We're very communication heavy with our clients and we're very um, planning and projection heavy with them so that they don't get into that squirrely place of are they, what are they doing? I don't know what they're doing. What's next? Is this the right group? Uh, right. That, that's, that's when things go really bad, really quick because in, in, in the agency world specifically, and I know there's a lot of businesses that you appeal to on the show, clients only quit for two reasons. The first reason, what's the first reason that everybody thinks that clients quit? I would say poor, poor results, poor results, right? Results is a given. You're hired to get results. Of course, if the results are bad, they're going to quit. But I would only weight that about 60%, where most people would weight it at 80 to 90%. The other reason is communication, and I'd weight it as high as 40%. I've I literally, <laughs> we, it's funny, it's the topic today. We dropped the ball on some communication with a client we've had for a while, We've had the client for a while, not dropped it for a while. We dropped it in the last two weeks and they went off down a rabbit hole in their head. They are making bucket loads of money, bucket loads. Half of our clients would cut off their left arm to be doing what they're doing. They quit today and it's because of communications. Hmm. So you can get amazing results. It's not enough. Yeah. Your communications have to almost be equal in their priority. Com completely agree. And uh, how is your team structured in terms of who communicates with clients? Do you have account managers? Do you have mm -hmm. your buyers communicating directly with the client? How does we, how's your team structured? We started off having the buyers communicate with the client, but it was, it, was, it was too many things going on and they weren't able to focus in on their zone of genius. So we actually built our, our we evolved it. I didn't know how to build an agency. I started an agency five years ago and I was like a one man show, you know, and now we have, you know, 35 full time and 130 you know, part-time. And so kind of figured it out as we were going, but now we do it in pod systems where we have, we call them a strategist, but it'd be typical term be account manager. Sure. And then we have a project manager that's completely dedicated to them to chase our team around for things and chase the client's team around for things. And so they're kind of like Batman and Robin. And then we have the campaign manager or managers because they're all channel specific underneath that. Mm -hmm. And then we have a tech lead and a creative lead because we're full service. So we're end to end. We do the tech, we do the creative, we do the reporting integrations, everything. So each pod is, is, is designated to the client and the account strategist does 99% of the communication. The only time that that doesn't happen is the project manager chasing the client's team for things when they need things. But the 99% of the communication comes from the strategist. And then our CMO is the escalation point. So if the client feels like they're not getting the attention they deserve or, or the communications are breaking down or it's just not jiving, they will escalate it up to the CMO who will come in and have a meeting with the pod and the client and, and resolve the issue. Got it. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And that's a, that's a structure that, that we've seen a lot too, kind of more recently pivoted over to pod structures mm. um, more so, but having that dedicated group of individuals on a client, I feel like 
instills a lot of a lot of confidence. I'm I'm curious if you would agree with this statement. I I'm of the belief, you know, uh, in agreeing with you on the communication side, that let's assume results are the same. But I believe a good account manager could easily extend a client relationship by three to six months, even 100%. if results were suffering. 100%. Versus if they did not have a good account manager. Absolutely correct. I've seen it happen many, many times. If they are empathetic, educated, coming up with ideas and solutions, timely in their communications, I'd say minimum three months. Love it. Yeah. yeah no, it's so interesting how that how that plays out. Relationship alone, right? It's either you have the results or you have the relationship. And it's well, yeah, I think there was a statistic and I'll, I'll butcher it because I don't remember what the exact statistic was, but I, I read something maybe 10 years ago that said um, when doctors have malpractice situations, those who had a caring bedside manner and were friendly with their patients got sued something like 10% as many as the ones who didn't. Wow. So the people didn't feel, even though they'd made a mistake. And it was justifiable in filing the lawsuit. Only one tenth actually followed through that because they genuinely liked them and had a relationship with them. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty that's crazy. A, yeah, that's a crazy statistic. Yeah, it was nuts. That's, I'm that's sure I butchered the statistic, but that's a great comparison, though. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's definitely bedside manner. <laughs> and you know, the if you actually care about them, like there's often times that I will, if something's just not working, we just can't get the result. I might give the client a free month, you know, to, to try and try new things or do whatever, because I want them to get the result and, you know, they, they, they deserve to get the result and just saying when they're like, Oh, you know, with the times are tough, we can't pay you or whatever to just say, well, too bad. So sad. Mm -hmm. It leaves a bad taste in their mouth. Like if you actually put your money where your mouth is and try and help the situation, it really stops retribution at, at a significant level. Like, I don't want anybody to ever leave mad. You and I both know, I mean, you're not going to get a result with every client you get. I mean, you go in with best intentions, you do your research, you have your plan. This is big boy and big, big girl world. This is business. It doesn't work every single time or everybody would be rich. Right. But if you actually go above and beyond to try and show that you care and put your money where your mouth is, you're not going to have a bunch of people running around saying, Oh, they burned me. They, they did this, they did that, you know, it's, it's, it's playing the long game, right? Yeah. And it's a small world and reputation follows you ever, yep. everywhere for a yep. long time. No, great, great points here. I want to change gears a little bit to sure. the uh, acquisition side of things mm -hmm. or, or rather the exit side of things. Mm -hmm. You know, you've exited three businesses. What do you feel, which business was the most complex for you to build uh, throughout that process in, in retrospect? <laughs> the the fitness company because we had a lot of distributors we had a supplement line um we had a shake we had an energy drink we had a metabolism boosting shot we had a phone app it was like my fitness pal and us one two in the app store for a couple of years in the in the fitness category we had we had a lot of moving pieces to that business and a lot of overhead, um, a lot of staff. That was definitely the most complex and probably took the most out of me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what would you say you learned in building that business that, you know, you took forward and said, I'm not going to quite do that this way again. Uh, was there any big principles you took from that? Yeah, I think that was a, a time in my life where I was still quite, um, ego driven or not sure what the right term is, but I remember sitting down with my dad who had been a beverage distributor, big beverage distributor for some of the biggest brands, Pepsi, Snapple, Volvic, Perrier um, in Canada. And he said to me, let me get this straight. You're going to make a protein shake in a, in a Red Bull can and an energy drink in a Red Bull can, and you're going to ship it directly to consumers. I said, yeah. He said, don't you think if that business model worked, Coca-Cola would do that already? And I said to him, well, you know, you're old. I got this thing figured out. 
And then, of course, you start shipping these things. They're heavy. They get dented. They get broken. There's taxes on everything. And all of a sudden, your prices are like twice as much as your competitors. And the whole thing was a giant disaster. And all I had to do was just listen to my dad, who, who made a very solid point. Like, do you see any of these big beverage companies shipping directly to consumer? No, because it doesn't work. The model doesn't work. And so that's one probably one of the biggest things I learned is is stop and talk to people who have been in the space and listen to what they have to say and, and really take it to heart because there's reasons why people do things in a certain way and the reasons they don't. You know, like you've gone to pod structure because you've heard multiple people say pod structure. I'm in pod structure because the other way didn't work. You know, this if somebody can teach me a better way than now, I'll do it. But for right now, this is the best way I've found so far. So, right. it, it, and the second thing I think is, um, holding on to multiple job roles way too long because I felt like nobody could do it better than me. And the reality was is many people could have done many of those roles better than me because I have my zone of genius, but it was like a, like a control freak, you know? And the guy that I ended up working with when I was building this agency who was really, really good at culture and operations and processes and things like that, he said, you're an assassin and that's fine, but an assassin can only do so much and get to a certain level. At some point, you're going to have to transition from assassin to CEO. And if you want to be a CEO, you have to have a completely different set of skills, trust, systems, everything, because you're not that guy right now. And when I transitioned and learned how to be that guy, it's a much it's a much easier business to run. Mm -hmm. For someone struggling to let go of the reins, and uh, you know, I, I like to call this founder syndrome, where you mm -hmm. think you're the best at everything. But uh, what tips do you have for people to let go of the reins and do it in a way that you know? Let's say very common one. Oh, I feel like everything's going to fall apart, or if I step Ooh. away for a week, everything you know goes to crap, and I lose clients, or etc. What yep. advice would you have for them? Uh, first and foremost, lower your expectations. I, I think we hire people to replace ourselves based on believing that it's only successful if they do it as well as we do it. And that is a, um, that's a recipe for disaster. Gary Vaynerchuk once I think said, if you can find somebody that cares about your business 60% as much as you do, that's a fucking miracle. And so if, why would you expect that, that they, they would care as much as you, right? So if you're in a sales role, for example, and you're closing 50% of the people you talk to, which is really common for the, the owner-led organizations we work with, they expect that a salesperson should come in and close at 50% or it's a failure. No, it's not possible. They're not the face. They're not the expert. They're not the anything. If they close at 20% consistently, that's awesome. Right. So you have to thinking, okay, I got to take a step back to take a step forward. I might have to hire two people to do the same thing as I did, but it's going to free me up to do all of these other things. So number one, you have to lower your expectations of the performance in my mind of the person that you're hiring to replace yourself, at least from a caring, how much they care perspective. Mm -hmm. If they've got great talent and you've researched them and, and so on and so forth, great, but they're still going to have a very long time frame to be able to get up to speed. Mm -hmm. You know, like I tell my clients when they hire a new salesperson, it's going to take 30 days for them to get the marbles out of their mouth. And it's going to take six months for you to see their true potential. Mm -hmm. But yet you want them to be closing at the ratio you want within three days. It's unrealistic, right? So you have to be patient. And I think secondly, we, we keep everything in our head. And I remember talking with my team a few years ago where I was blowing my top. Like, why didn't you do this? Why don't you see this? This is obvious. Why isn't this then this way? And they stopped me and they said, you know, you always ask these questions, but you've never actually put all this out in a document or a spreadsheet or a workflow or anything. And you, you think that we all know what you know. We don't know what you know. So you have to take a step back and really dump every granular detail out that you know and structure it 
and put people through the training and have them shadowed for a while and have them shadow someone else for a while, like the stuff that you think is easy is probably not easy. You're just used to doing it so long that you, you think everybody's incompetent if they don't do it exactly the way, same way you do on day one. I love that. In incredible points. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how I think because we talk about things and, you know, even among entrepreneurs and among peers, you know, a lot of people know the same information and we forget that uh, we need to bring our teams up to that to that same level as well. Yeah, I think it was, I can't remember the, the who's the CEO of um, Starbucks. Maybe you uh, do. Howard Schultz used to be. Howard Schultz was the name. I don't. I, I. I obviously didn't know he had moved on. He had. He had some quote, and again, I'm sure I'll butcher the statistic, but it's just for the sake of the point. He said, "Every time we make a change in Starbucks, it's in our SOPs to tell the store operators 500 times about the new changes." Wow. And I remember like reading the stat and going. What? But how often do we just get in our business and go, hey, we're doing something new. We're going to do this, this, and this. Do it this way from now on. Then we just walk off and we expect that it's, that's how it's yeah, going to work. No, no future right? accountability or, or reminders or. No, no, no more training, nothing. no more repetition, no more reporting, no more accountability, no, no Q&A periods, no, no anything. And then, and then a month later, the same mistake happens. You're like, I freaking told you a month ago that we're doing it this way. Right. Cause we told them one time on a team yeah. call, you know, like, and, and I do all of these things. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I can speak from, you know, my own experience. And then you, you take a step back and you go, I'm an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, uh, it, it's, it's interesting. The lies we tell ourselves <laughs> sometimes yeah. about what works. Um, yeah. Cool. So on the acquisition side as well, you know, three businesses, have you noticed anything or do you prepare for exit in any certain way to maximize the multiple that you're getting when you take it to market? What are some of the things that you've mm -hmm. picked up on over time? Yeah, I think the single biggest thing is, is number one, uh, there's so many now, they're all popping, popping into my head. I'm just going to start with one. There are, there are different buyers at different revenue levels. So before you think about selling, you have to ask yourself, who do I want to sell to? So for example, if we take a look at the agency world, for example, you're, if you're doing less than $10 million in a year in revenue, your multiple is way lower than somebody doing over $10 million a year. The reason why is there's less risk for the buyer, but most importantly, you open a completely new tranche of buyers. You start getting into private equity money, um, you know, VCs things like that, anything below 10 million, you're probably looking at a more of a merger or a, a tangent relationship or something like that. And your multiple is going to be lower. And they're also going to ask you to carry a lot of the, the, the debt on it, maybe give you 50% upfront and 50% over three years. And they're going to want you to be in the business for two years where you get above that 10 million mark half the time they've already got a team in place. And they're like, here's your check, get out. You know, so you have, so first off, you got to look at your, your revenue markers and understand there's a completely different world between sub 10 million, north of 10 million, north of 20 million, 50 million, you know, you get into like north of 20 million a year in revenue. There's so many idiots with a blank check in the market that are supposed to go buy things like you and hope that they magically blossom into some unicorn that they're just throwing money around at everything left and right. It's not, it's not the same it's not the same buyer. Yeah. So that's something I think everybody has to understand. Number two, nobody wants to buy your job. So you have to look at yourself and create an org chart and say, where am I in this org chart? And you're probably in more than one spot and realize that nobody wants to buy your job. So you've got to hire and train people to where you are inconsequential to the business, which is a weird place because then once you do that, you might not even want to sell because you don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. So then you get to that place where you're like, well, do I just keep collecting a big check every month for doing nothing and having a couple of staff meetings a week? Or do I sell this thing? Hmm. Becomes a harder decision. Everybody wants to sell when they're doing all of the things and they hate their jobs inside of their own business. Right? If you don't like your job in your own business, don't try and sell because nobody's going to want to buy it. Fire yourself from your own job and train somebody to replace you in that spot. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. So tell, tell me how you think that, about this as well. So I always say that I think exits sound sexier than they, they really are. They're brutal. Right. And brutal. in addition to that, you get this lump sum of money, right? And what are you mm -hmm. trying to recreate with that money all over again? The cash flow, right? Yeah. You, get, <laughs> you know, like we get rid of this cash flow stream for a lump sum of cash. And, and then we pay. Yeah, and then we're like, we're not making any money. And you go try and create yep. more cash flow. So it's like, right. should we have just held, you know? <laughs> uh, right. Should we have just made it better and fired ourselves and hired more people? And, and that's, you should really talk with like a, like a really high level executive coach or a psychologist, like it sounds weird, but go and talk with them about why you're thinking about doing it and get them to ask you the hard questions. Like, so what are you going to do after? Like, what are you going to spend your time on? How long do you think you're going to want to do that for? Because the reality is you probably don't want to exit. You probably just hate your job inside of your, your business. And, and if you're a natural born problem solver slash entrepreneur, you're going to literally last like three weeks, maybe, before you're into your next thing. So, you know, I mean, great. Getting a big lump sum of money is awesome. It's financial security. It's it's all of those things. But but is it the real reason that you did it? You know, it's, it, those questions are worth asking. And I've had a lot of friends. Um, do you know Ryan Moran from capitalism.com? Sounds super familiar. I, I don't know him personally. Okay. I, I was sitting with him last year and, and he exited his first company, I think, for like 12 million, something like that. He said within a week, he was building his next thing. And I said, what, what, what was the biggest thing you learned from that experience? He said, I should have taken six months off. Because I said, I got into something not because I really wanted to do it. I got into something because I was in the habit of doing something. Mm. So if I'd taken an exit of six months or a, 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 a rest, a vacation or whatever for six months, I, I probably would have done something that I was much happier doing after the fact. Wow. Yeah. That, that's a profound piece of advice because it is, we're just habitually busy and we like feeling yeah, busy. We're addicted. Yeah, to it. for sure. <laughs> we're addicted to it. I remember the, the, the first company I sold um, to my partner, I didn't have to stay around. I didn't have to do anything. I literally deleted my email and changed my phone number the next day and walked out the door and went to Atlantis in the Bahamas and sat on the beach. And it was like the strangest feeling. It, it was like I went from being inside of Cowboy Stadium with everybody cheering to like a monk in a cave in complete silence. Like the noise was just instantly gone like a vacuum. And it was so weird to, to, to be in that position. And then I actually went into mourning I actually like went into a state of mourning for about two weeks. Like, where are my people? Where are my conversations? Where's my value? Where's my, who am I now? And it's really natural, you know, and it should be expected. You'll have this weird mourning funk, even though you got a whole bunch of money in your bank account because your life is not, is instantly not the same. Mm. It's really interesting. It, it is. And it, it's also interesting because you, you think you're, you're chasing this top of the mountain and yeah, you think it's going to be like nothing but popping bottles and flying private to Vegas and like, Rah! and you might do that. You'll still, still feel those things when you get yeah. back. It's, it's maybe fun for, for a, a couple months. I think it's uh, I think it's uh, there's this quote from Jordan Peterson and he's like, how many margaritas on a beach is going to, is going to do it. Like, you know, you, yeah. <laughs> you can't do that yeah. forever. So I live on the beach, bro. I live in the Cayman islands. I've got seven mile beach here. It's ranked one or two in the world every single year. I could go to the beach and drink margaritas with the tourists every day. That shit gets old, bro. <laughs> like everything gets old when you when when you can do it. And there's a certain amount of money and free time that makes people crazy. Mm. And I and I've, I've talked to a lot of my friends about this. And and I maybe maybe when I take six months off after I sell this next company at some point. I'll, I'll do some research and write a book about it. I actually think there's a certain amount of money that makes people insane. Mm. And I'm not sure, maybe you could give some input on this. I don't know if you've experienced or not, but I live in one of the wealthiest places on earth. And I, I have a general idea of what everybody's worth because I can research it online. 
And it sort of seems like when you get past like 50 million, you detach from the fabric of society because you don't need to do anything. You can pretty much buy yourself out of any problem. You feel like you're better than everybody else. And so just, I see so many people will like the fabric of their morality breaks down at a certain level. So I'm not even sure it's healthy if, I, if I'm going to be honest. I, I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, once you get out of, you know, not only scarcity, but abundance and into extreme wealth, you start looking for like the money is no longer stimulating to you. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, it's, it's no longer about that. And I think for a lot of people, it becomes about the power or authority or, you know, what, whatever other thing that they're interested in. I feel like in. they're trying to search for that rush somehow. And then they also just, just become detached and rude and self-centered. It's very strange. It, it is. And I think, I think, yeah, money makes you more of, of who you are, you know? <laughs> And yeah. And, and I've, I've always said that to people, like it just amplifies who you already are. So I'm sure it's not the same case for everybody. Like if, if, if you put $50 million more in my bank account right now, it, it doesn't change my life. It, like, it, and that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't really grasp either is if you get yourself down to virtually no debt and you get yourself, you know, cash flow positive, you know, ref, you know, I have real estate income that comes in every month or whatever, where like your basic expenses and stuff are taken care of. And, you know, you put $50 million more in your bank account, nothing really changes. It really like, loses its utility. It, it like, okay, so I drive a jacked up redneck Jeep Gladiator right now. I mean, the it's, I love it. It's my dream car. I wouldn't want anything else. Let's, let's say it's a $130,000 car, right? So, now I'm going to drive what a Ferrari. I wouldn't even want a Ferrari more, but like a Bugatti. Like, I live in a beautiful house. I fly first class everywhere. Like, so when I'm going to fly private now, okay, private's cool. I like private. Like, so there's some, yeah. Okay. But like, what else is really going to change? And, and humans are wired. Tony Robbins said this, they're, they're wired for progress. So it kind of, defeats the purpose when you exit, when you don't need the money because you remove purpose and progress from the equation and then it makes you crazy. Mm. Yeah, when you don't have that thing that you're you're striving for or, you yeah. know, it's, it's the cliche that the journey is always better than the... Yeah. Than look, the at, look at Hormozy, went from selling gym launch to then, you know, writing a book to then social media nuts and then another book and then acquisition.com. You know why? Because he's a workout junkie. He understands the process. He needs to be in constant motion. He doesn't need to work anymore. He has to do these things mm -hmm. to be happy. So the concept of just exiting and somehow it's going to make you happy is totally reverse in my opinion. Yeah. No, this is, this is a, a great topic that I think should be talked about more by people because we're, we're always talking about, you know, the moves we want to make and what the end game looks like. And it's like, maybe where we're at right now is, is the best it's going to feel, you know, maybe it's, it's really interesting that you said that because I, I talk to a lot of people sometimes and they say, okay, are you happy? Yeah, I'm happy. Okay. Then why grow? Well, cause I, cause I'm supposed to, no, you're not. You're supposed to be happy. So don't just try and push the envelope because you society says you should, if you're happy where you're at, stay where you're at. If you want to grow because it makes you happy because you like the challenge, then, then go do that. Mm -hmm. Right. But don't just buy into societal demands of you need, you must get married. You must have kids. You must work a job for 50 years or you must climb the corporate ladder or whatever. Like, what is it that actually makes you happy? Cause the, the alternative will make you miserable mm -hmm. and, I, and you won't succeed anyway. Right. And I almost think in, you know, the circles that we run in a lot of times, it's almost other people setting the goalpost for us and not actually reflecting mm -hmm. on like what does make me happy or even taking the time to think about it. It's like that guy is doing yeah. this and I want to get there because I see it. And the it's, it's comparatitis, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, and have you ever read the book called um, the psychology of money? I have. Yes. 
Okay, so then you'd understand what I mean when he talks about in the psychology of money how the whole concept of the investing industry is ridiculous. It is. Because everybody's investing strategy only considers their own strategy and their own goals. It doesn't consider what your life is and what your strategies are and what your fears and wants are. So everyone's just trying to push that on you when it's not necessarily even what you want. Mm -hmm. And it's just an example. It's one of the best books I've ever read, Psychology of Money. Yeah, no, that's a great, great recommendation. There's a lot of good points in that book. It's It's been a while. It's probably worth a reread for me. Um, yeah, I've given it to a few. People. I know we're I know we're almost at time here. Are you good to go a little over? Or do you gotta you gotta run? Um, I actually have a hard stop because I have a massage appointment, which I get every Friday. Also, keys to victory in life. Um, so at two fifteen every Friday, my wife and I go and we get massages, and that's the signal that the day is over. And then we go have dinner after that. And I started doing that about two years ago. It was one of the best things I ever did because I would just work all day, sometimes into six, seven at night on a Friday. And what? Why? Right. Right. Like, so I had to put a blocker in my schedule of you must physically be here at 2.15 to make me stop working. And my, my, my life, business, happiness, balance. Thank me for it. I absolutely love that. Yeah. Incredible, incredible boundaries you've set for yourself over time. And yep. uh, yeah, yep. truly living it. I could have talked to you for three more hours. We had so much more me too. we could have covered. And hence, that's why it's there, right? Because I would do this for the rest of the day, right? It's, 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 it's perfect. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, anything you want to plug, anything coming up for you that you want people to know about? Uh, well, I'm fortunate enough to be speaking, uh, one of the featured speakers at Traffic and Conversions uh, in Las Vegas in January, which is really the foremost resource for live events for digital marketing. Uh, myself, Richard Branson, um, who I'm a big fan of, lots of other people. Um, so that would be a, a great event to attend. Um, and obviously, if you want to, to talk to me about your marketing efforts, it's pretty easy to find me at 7milemedia.com. Uh, but yeah, life is good, man. I'm just uh, just staying in my lane and doing what I know how to do in my zone of genius and going for massages on Fridays. Incredible. Well, thank you so much for your time, Aaron. Not only are you an incredible business mind, but an incredible human as well. So uh, thanks so much for watching, everyone. We will see you next time. Thank you so much for watching. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Ask an Operator podcast, and we will see you in a couple weeks with our next episode.